With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. There's never been any sense of closure to the Kennedy assassination. There's never been someone that's come forth and said, this is what happened, this is what took place. And it's just a shame that Kennedy wasn't able to live his dream and and do what he set forth to do. And that's what my book does. It, It gives the reader for the first time the opportunity to see what would have happened had Kennedy lived. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Okay, this is really cool as a premise, and I I love this whole what-if genre. In fact, a couple of months ago on Coast to Coast, I interviewed an author who wrote a book about time travel and saving John Lennon. It was called Imagine. This is sort of the same idea, but this book involves time travel and saving John F. Kennedy, and again, imagining how the world would be different had Kennedy lived. The book is Conspiracy to Murder, a suspense novel, and I should mention the publisher is Black Rose, Black Rose Publishing, and uh, it's available on Amazon.ca and Noble.com, N-O-B-E-L.com. Adrian Biasini, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Richard? Very well. First of all, congratulations. A 15-year birthing process, and finally here we have Conspiracy to Murder. Now, I'm guessing you're maybe not old enough to really remember the Kennedy assassination, or, or am I wrong? You look very youthful in your picture. How old were you when Kennedy was shot? Well, I was born uh, in 65, two years uh. after the actual assassination. All right. So this is always fascinating, because I was born just a few months after, so obviously I have no recollection. Uh, but I'm always interested in how uh, younger people find their way and become interested in what many people now, you talk to young people and you ask them, it's the old Dennis Miller joke, where were you when JFK was shot? And they think you mean the Oliver Stone movie. I, I would say JFK, I mean, I've always been uh, an historian by nature and it's what I studied. And I've always been fascinated with 20th century history. And I remember in, in my high school years, I did three main projects. One was on the Beatles, and of course we know 
Beatlemania never goes away. The second project I did that I was fascinated with was the story of the Titanic. And, you know, and we all, of course, we all know what James Cameron, another great Canadian, did with that. And, and coincidentally, JFK was another one that I was just baffled with and amazed with, with all, everything that's, that makes up the story of JFK and Camelot. And then, then you have this incredible story on how, how he died. And it's just one for the ages. And I just remember from, from that age, when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, just being mesmerized at that age, even though I, I was barely born when, when it took place. And so that's where my humble beginnings with the JFK story uh, started. Well, Titanic, uh, Kennedy and the Beatles, you certainly chose three sort of uh, pivotal moments, not only uh, in, in the political history, geopolitical history, uh, but also the cultural history, certainly with the Beatles. Now, uh, we, we're going to talk about the Kennedy assassination because you are, uh, you know, a, a student of history, a graduate of history. Uh, but I want to just talk about the, the book here for a moment as well. Conspiracy to Murder. It is, it's a suspense novel. And, uh, I, I know that, uh, you've probably heard this before, but it's interesting, the, um, the parallels. It's almost a, a genre unto itself. Like the, the what if genre. Give people a little sense, a little bit of a sense of the, uh, of, of the book because it does sort of, uh, sound reminiscent of Stephen King's 112263, which involves two of my favorite topics, time travel and Kennedy. And, and so does yours. But explain a little bit about the premise of the book and maybe how yours is different than Stephen King's. Well, when I was looking at the assassination of Kennedy, I looked at the assassination and all the different characters involved in it. And again, I, I just was enthralled by it. And it kind of mirrors you know, his, ter- his short term in office and the pomp and the pageantry and everything that was Camelot. And when I looked at that, I looked at so many books that had been written up to that point that all seemed to concentrate basically on his life or his assassination and all the differing theories of those responsible for his death. Up to that point, no one had ever looked at, JF- at the JFK story differently. My idea was to turn the whole JFK story upside down, to c- kind of take it to a different place. And my thought process was simply this. I'm a person that kind of looks at what ifs and everything. So if I look at a movie and I look at an ending, I kind of look at it and say, well, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of cool the way they did that. But what if this took place? And what if that took place? And I kind of looked at the JFK story and I looked at it and said, what about if, if one would look at it and take a totally different spin on the ending? What if Kennedy were to have survived the assassination attempt on his life. And and the question I I posed to myself was, quite frankly, how would the world have been different? How would would the world reacted? So my book is based on the revisionist view of the Kennedy assassination, and it supports the theory of a conspiracy involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. And I think what kind of... My book kind of takes the Kennedy story and puts it in two perspectives. Being an historian by nature, I wanted to make, I wanted to educate the reader on the, the different premises and the different theories and the different out, outlooks on how people look at the, at the Kennedy assassination. So I kind of present, I present the reader with all the facts. And when you look at the Kennedy assassination, there are so many things that are happening 
in the 60s. You know, we're, we're, we're just approaching the zenith of the Cold War. You have the big Russian bear. And, and here you have an, Amer- an American president that takes on the Russian bear full-fledged during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And he not only does he fare well, but he, he wins that fight. And, and he forces the Russians to remove out of Cuba. So, so that's happening. And then you have everything that's happening in the 60s. And, and so my premise was the notion of, you know, turning the story all upside down and, and sort of saying, well, what if, you know, I introduced this character, John, that is doing a, it starts off that he's doing his final project and he's given the, 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 the project of JFK. Now he, he's, he's a high school senior. He, he knows nothing about the Kennedy assassination and he starts to, he starts to educate himself and he starts to investigate and research. And as he starts researching the JFK assassination, he starts having these visions of things that take place that he has no prior knowledge of. And, and he starts researching the Kennedy assassination. He starts looking at all the foreign policy that was taking place around Kennedy at the time. And, and, and all of a sudden he comes to the startling realization that Kennedy was assassinated in his own country. And, and that's quite a turning point for this character because he's like, you know, here we have a president who was b- beloved by everybody in this country and and abroad in the whole world, and and here he is assassinated in his own country. So John comes to that startling realization, and and then he starts going, and he's he's able to 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 see these visions, and in short order, these visions start becoming more and more vibrant, and they start becoming more so obvious to him and then from from visions he's able he he now finds a turning point in his life when he is envisioning in his mind that portion of the Kennedy assassination where when Kennedy was assassinated and and he's in Parkman Hospital and the secret service wanted to remove the body from Washington from from Dallas and bring it to Washington and the fight that took place in there and all of a sudden, he makes a move, and somebody, one of the characters that he's now looking at and witnessing, they all of a sudden can see him, and he realizes that he's transcended time. And and now knowing this, he sort of comes to the realization and makes a decision that he wants to try and prevent the assassination from taking place. So, right, so he travels back in time and, and literally changes uh, the course of history. Uh, let right. me just remind listeners, Adrian Biasini is uh, with us, and uh, the book, it's a suspense novel, Conspiracy to Murder, but it's historical fiction, all, all of the you know, the characters associated with the, the actual events surrounding uh, Kennedy's uh, presidency and ultimately his, his death are, are really in place, uh, but then, sort of as an overlay, we have these, uh, the, these interesting fictional characters, including, as you mentioned, Adrian John, this high school senior who stumbles onto the facts and surrounding the Kennedy assassination and is able to, as you say, transcend time and space. Now, uh, so I, I, I let off asking you about the, the parallels between uh, this. I mean, this is 15 years in the making. You probably started this book before Stephen King started uh, 11-22-63. But that book also involves time travel and, and, uh, and the Kennedy assassination. Um, what, do you, what do you think of the parallels? Well, I, I, my, my first reaction... Quite honestly, I started writing my book in 2001. I, I, I had a car accident. I was home for several months, and I just started putting pen to paper. So I started my research and, and my thought process back in 2001. 
Um, and, and again, it's taken me 15 years. But the parallels between our books are obviously that we have, we both have characters that are, that travel into time to, to ostensibly try and prevent the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy. In both cases, they are su- successful in doing so. Where our books differ in is that in, in Mr. King's novel, his novel relies on the premise that Oswald was the lone assassin. Right. And that the killing of Oswald would, would ultimately prevent the assassination of President Kennedy. And as his story unfolds, the saving of President Kennedy leads to cataclysmic world events, mm-hmm. including earthquakes and, and as he puts a nuclear fallout. Whereas mine, my book is different in that I take a conspiratorial sort of outlay on, on what my, my book is based on the premise that Oswald wasn't the lone assassin and that it was part of a much bigger conspiracy. So when my character goes back in time, he's not there to, to, to simply stop Oswald. He's there to stop what I describe as a team of, of assassins that are there to, to, to assassinate President Kennedy. So that's where, that's where there's a bit of a difference in terms of where my book goes. Exactly. Uh, and very quickly, as we head into a break, um, I, I was reading 112263. Uh, I was in Los Angeles, and I was about to interview James DiEugenio, uh, for an episode for the TV show on the Kennedy assassination. And Eugenio is, is one of the great assassination researchers. He came in, immediately saw the book on my nightstand and said, that's propaganda! Where yours differs from uh, Stephen King's 112263, uh, is that, that, uh, King sort of subscribes obviously to the orthodox narrative. That is that Oswald acted alone and um, that his character in his book goes back, prevents the assassination, and it causes uh, catastrophic events. Which, you know, we it's the old grandfather paradox, which is one of the issues revol- revolving around time travel. You never know, you know, one little... One little um, incident when you go back and you you uh, interfere with uh, with the timeline, you could cause you know a major catastrophe. Uh, but but your character John saves saves Kennedy, and uh, this is sort of the, the what if and how the world would be different. But let's let's talk about the Kennedy assassination itself. And uh, again, the fact that that your uh, view is that Oswald did not act alone. Um, at what point in your in your Research as a as a student of history, did you sort of uh, arrive at that conclusion that that this was a conspiracy that Oswald was not the lone gunman? Well, I you know I, I think if someone takes a look at the Kennedy assassination really carefully, I I just think it's so obvious that the 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 party line that's being brought forth by the Warren Commission is there are just there are just too many anomalies. There are just too many strange occurrences. There's just too many coincidences that one can summarize. They they just don't add up. There's and, and there are so many characters that are involved in 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 the Kennedy assassination. If one really studies it, it is so intricate, and there are so many so many variables involved that. Unless you're a student of it and you really study it, you wouldn't realize it. If someone just looks at the Kennedy assassination from face value, as I did when I was first looking at it, it, it just seemed at first very obvious. Here you have an, an, a, a president who was assassinated in Dallas. They quickly converged. They, they arrested the person that was responsible. Unfortunately, he was 
he was assassinated himself. But you know, Lyndon Bain Johnson, uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson was sworn as a as president right away, just to 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 carry things and 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 make it seem like things were running smoothly, and everything went as it was. And they here you had a Warren Commission that was put forth by the government. It was it went on and was released almost to the day of the assassination. So it just seemed like it was thousands of pages. They looked through every what appeared to be every nook and cranny. And here one would say, hey, it's all well done. They, they did the investigation. They did the due process. And, and um, it was delivered in less than a year later. And, and um, Bob's your uncle. But when one really looks at it carefully... There's, it's just it, it's not black and white as it would seem. And, and when I started researching my book and I really delved deep into all the different portions and all the different characters and everything that made up the, the candy assassination, it almost became so much easier for me to write my book because A, there was just nonstop material to look at. And B, there was just so many characters and so many things that took place. It was just incredible. It was almost difficult to try and keep it to the the under three hundred pages that I did when when you added everything because there was just there's just so much that this subject covers. Uh, I'd be interested in your take on this. It seems to me that uh, Kennedy was really the moment he arrived in the Oval Office, uh, his fate his fate was sealed uh, because. Uh, you know his experiences in as a senator uh, uh, traveling around southeast asia he he formed certain opinions about american intervention uh gunboat diplomacy around the world uh and obviously was not uh he was certainly not uh you know i don't believe soft on communism but he he was obviously wanting to to, to make a more conciliatory approach uh and yet he was surrounded by uh hawks uh everywhere uh, it was really uh, a national security state, and uh, he was like a sacrificial lamb and walked into this. I think, I think the moment he was elected and arrived and, at the White House and was sworn in, his fate was sealed. How do you feel? I totally agree with you, Richard. I mean, I, you know, here, here, here's the thing: is that there were so many things going on before Kennedy even came into power. You had, uh, you had Cuba. That's a few hundred miles away from the border of the U.S. And again, you know, we're, you have to put yourself in that mindset of we're in the 60s, we're approaching the height of the Cold War, and and here you, ha- as soon as he comes into office, the first thing that happens is is you have a Bay of Pigs in, in insurgents in Cuba to try and and oust uh, Fidel Castro, and it goes terribly wrong. Um, it was the onset of it was was put together during the Eisenhower. Administration and when Kennedy came into power, he basically was almost forced to rubber stamp something that he didn't formulate himself. But his advisors and had told him it's in the works, everything's in order, it has to go. You have to just you can't stop this. It's in motion, and and it's a disaster. And within a hundred days of coming into power, Kennedy was livid. He was very unhappy with the way it turned out. It was a total disaster. America tried to distance itself in trying to make it look like they had nothing to do with it. But in short order, they were forced to, uh, Kennedy was forced to admit their involvement in it. And he was livid. He was very upset with the fact that he was put in that position uh, right from, from the get-go. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, Richard. He, he had a lot of variables 
put on him that that were out of his control as soon as he stepped into office. And let's talk about Oswald for a moment, because very interesting character, and I think the whole key to this is to understand who Oswald was. Here he is, uh, you know, had a top security clearance at Atsugi Air Force Base in Japan. Suddenly, he, he uh, they find a way to get him out. I, I guess he, he supposedly charged with throwing a, a dumping a beer over a superior's head or something, which was kind of a convenient way to to get him out and then smuggle him into the Soviet Union. And a lot of people don't realize in 1959 there was a, a concerted effort to infiltrate the Soviet Union with with spies, American spies. Uh, Oswald wasn't the only one. Uh, who arrived? He, he went to Belarus, of course, but there were others. And uh, it's 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 interesting that the timing, of course. Here he is, uh, um, an expert in, in in radar and so forth. And um, Atsugi was the home of the U two spy plane. And while Oswald is over there, of course, Francis Gary Powers and the U two is shot down. Uh, it's as if, and they, in order to do that, of course, because it was a fast plane, it flew very high. They couldn't get the Russian interceptors up there in time. It's like they had the codes. And I'm wondering your thoughts on the idea that Oswald was sent over there to leak those codes to the Soviets, shoot down the U-2, cause an international incident. And what happened as a result of that was this this planned meeting uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union under Eisenhower, uh, which may have resulted in a some sort of a detente, certainly a thawing in relations during the Cold War, uh, because Francis, Gary Francis Powers was shot down, it scuttled that meeting, and that in itself changed the course of history. Do you think Oswald, that's why he was sent to the Soviet Union, for that express purpose on the, on the, on the, on the, um, sort of, at the behest of the military industrial complex who didn't want detente? You make a really good point. I, I think it's, I think it's quite conceivable that that was in fact the case. I hear, I mean, here you have, a person that uh, six days after his 17th birthday in 1956, he enlists in, in the Marines, and he was quickly called a Scott uh, Oswaldkovich because of his open apparent support of communism. And it didn't, but this didn't prevent the Marine Corps from giving him unusual, uh, the unusual seven-year-old soldier radar training, security clearance, as you say, yet. By in 19, on February 25th, 1959, Oswald was given a Russian language test by Marines. Seven months later, he was on his way to defect to the Soviet Soviet Union after several strange circumstances re- resulted in his rapidly obtaining a password discharge. There were unscheduled flights, and and the KGB openly suspected Oswald as being a false defector sent to spy for the U.S. Um, and you're right, the U.S. secretly had a spy program at the time. Um, but apparently the Soviets played along by encouraging, encouraging Oswald to stay. And um, at the time, he was living with with his girlfriend, Marina, and they he, he met and he married her. And, and yet her uncle, her, her uncle was a top official in Minsk. And in June of 1962, despite... His earlier threat to a U.S. Uh, a U.S. embassy official that he might give the Russians U.S. military secrets, Oswald was allowed by both governments to easily return to the U.S. with his uh, new wife and their daughter in tow. He was even given a loan, I think it was by the U.S. State Department, to repatriate him. I mean, I, I would think that would be unprecedented. Here you have a defector 
threatening, as you say, to give secrets to the Soviets, uh, which is uh, treason. I mean, that's uh, they execute people for that. Uh, ask the Rosenbergs. Uh, and yet he is uh, repatriated into the United States, given a loan to do so. And then he finds himself, curiously, uh, you know, this um, sort of this strange loner. Uh, he's he's kind of hanging around some pretty interesting circles. White Russians in Dallas, oil barons, uh, Michael and Ruth Payne, of course, who were uh, uh, very highly placed at Bell Helicopter. And uh, they certainly had a lot to lose when uh, Kennedy wanted to... Uh, to de-escalate American involvement in, in Vietnam, uh, talk about the military-industrial complex. I mean, Bell, t- Bell helicopters uh, probably took the biggest hit as a result of that. So what do you make of the the, uh, the friendship between Lee Harvey Oswald and, and Michael and Ruth Payne? You know, it's a, that's an interesting question. It, it's curious. I mean, it, uh, these were Quakers. And perhaps they were just being extra nice to somebody who was very shy and he had a young family. I don't know if we'll ever know the, the truth. I mean, Oswald is a very, very strange and interesting character. I mean, he's, he's, he's seen with, you know, he's, he's, he's part of the chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. He was often seen in friendly company with former Civil Air Patrol Commander David Ferry. Um, they were both seen with private detective Guy Bannister in Bannister's office at the heart of the U.S. intelligence community in New Orleans. And 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 both Ferry and Bannister, uh, Bannister was a former FBI agent, were rabidly anti-communist and anti-Castro. So he's, he's, he's sort of in company with some very strange individuals. And, and, and again, Oswald is... What's strange is he is perhaps the most unlikely of assassins. You know, it's just he's a very, very strange individual. In January of 1963, under the alias of Alex Sedell, he orders two guns through mail order. And, of course, you know, they say the rest is history. One of those guns was was apparently, they claim, was used to assassinate President Kennedy uh, in a short order, but Oswald is a very strange individual. And but the but what has to be noted is, in the in the short few hours after his arrest, at every point, and if you listen to any transcript of his interviews with police and, and his interviews with reporters, he from every point from day one he always exclaimed his innocence. He always said he was a patsy. He always proclaimed that he was totally innocent. All right, Adrian, i got to break in here. I, apologies, but we'll, uh, we'll take a quick time out and come back and discuss. I'd like to, to talk a few minutes about the ordering of that murder weapon from Klein's Sporting Goods Store in Chicago. I mean, that, that alone uh, we, could, we could discuss for two hours. Uh, and I think, you know, the, 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 the curious circumstances surrounding the ordering of the weapon would, would lead many to conclude he couldn't have been the, uh, the lone assassin. Conspiracy to Murder is the book, a suspense novel. We'll discuss further with Adrian Biasini. My name is Richard Serrett. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. 
Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes, or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus, for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. We are back with Adrian Biasini. He is a uh, student of history and a... Uh, a new author. Uh, the book is called Conspiracy to Murder. It's a suspense novel, and uh, the comparisons have been uh, made to uh, Stephen King's sort of what-if book, which involved time travel and the Kennedy assassination, of course, 11-22-63. But yours is a little different, as we pointed out, in that um, you uh, and, and Stephen King uh, took some heat uh, from those... Let's face it. The majority of us uh, believe that uh, do not believe that um, that Oswald acted alone, or that some of us don't believe he was involved at all. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, Stephen King sort of took the orthodox um, uh, narrative that Oswald was responsible. So the the sort of the gist of his book is this time traveler goes back and prevents Oswald uh, from uh, from killing Kennedy. Uh, you take a more conspiratorial view. And uh, I, I wanted to touch very briefly. This is a short segment, but you mentioned the ordering of the murder weapon. And it's interesting, uh, you know, today we take it for granted that if you can order through Amazon uh, and in not too distant future, they'll be delivered by drone. Uh, but back in 19, uh, you know, 63, when he ordered supposedly a murder weapon from a, de- a department store in Chicago. Think about that. If you're going to kill somebody, why would you leave a paper trail? And then how would it? Work that you would have a, a post office box under the name of Alex Heidel uh, using an alias. I mean, he would ha- you'd have to provide you would have to provide um, um, identification. I mean, you can't order a, a weapon through the mail using an alias unless you know you've got the identification. There's just so many, and it and it and the and the order was processed at lightning speed, like within 24 hours. Think of that in 1963. Doesn't happen. I, I totally agree with you. And to me, if, in my humble, in my humble opinion, and I've always thought this, I think this is just further proof of 
something wrong in the state of Denmark. I mean, I think this was done in order to plant evidence against him so that there was a paper trail. I mean, putting your name down as Alex Heidel, in my mind, is almost done on purpose in order to make it look like you're trying to get people off track of, of associating the purchase through you. But in my mind, you're absolutely right. It was. It's more than curious that something is being ordered in that fashion. It arrives so quickly, and there's such a paper trail that's left. And I, and I guess, and I think that in my mind, that supports the fact that that he was set up and and was made to look like he was the lone assassin. To me, it's just it's just a textbook textbook of how things are done and in that time to make it look like and have everything point back to him. Yeah, if you look at no other aspect of the Kennedy assassination, uh, I would encourage people just to look at the ordering of the uh, Manlicher Carcano, the humanitarian uh, weapon, uh, through Klein's uh, department store in Chicago. Uh, and um, just look at how quickly that order was processed and so forth, and then consider... You know, you you uh, you order it under an alias, and then you show up at the uh, the post office to pick up your package. And uh, what they don't ask for identification, so Lee Harvey Oswald claims to be Alex Heidel, and they just give him a weapon. <laughs> and if you're going to kill somebody, are you really going to order it through the mail? I mean, come on, it just defies all credulity. And and you know, let's not lose sight of the fact of the weapon that was ordered. I mean, if you're going to assassinate a president. Are you going to be using such, such uh, an insufficient piece of hardware like that, like that rifle? It just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't support. It, it, one looking at this is, is would come to the conclusion that weapon isn't even capable of doing what they're suggesting he did in such a short order of time. No, true enough. Uh, true enough. And then there's the whole idea that uh, you take the weapon to the Texas Book Depository and it's unassembled. Uh, so now you've got to put it back together. And I don't know if anyone's fired a weapon before, but you don't just put a, uh, a, a scope on a weapon and just hope that you've got it lined up. I mean, you have to field test it. You put the scope on. Uh, and then you shoot at your target and you go, oh, I need to adjust it. I need, you know, I need, it's, it's low or it's high or it's to the left. It's, it's a skew. Uh, you don't just go to the, <laughs> the murder scene, the crime scene, uh, throw on the, on, on the scope and everything works perfectly. I mean, there again, it just defies all credulity. I totally agree with you. And, 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 you know, there's eyewitness terror. There's a lot of eyewitness testimony that co-workers saw Oswald in the lunchroom literally seconds after he was supposedly had supposedly shot president Kennedy. And, and this is shown in, in, in the Oliver Stone movie, JFK, because it bears witness. Uh, you have an eyewitness that saw Oswald in the lunchroom was not sweating, did not look to be in any sort of distress. One would, one would think that someone who has just assassinated the, the, the president would have to run down six, six floors and then to be in that condition where he's showing absolutely no stress or anything, it just defies logic. Let me ask you, how, I mean, how do you think the world would be different had Kennedy been saved from the assassin's bullet? My, 
my novel takes some time, and it, and it does give some interesting tidbits as to how how history would have changed. But in, in my humble estimation, I, I think it's quite conceivable that Kennedy would have obviously would have finished his first term and would have probably been successful for a second term of office. And and Kennedy had a lot of projects and a lot of policies that he was putting into place. He he was a proponent of civil rights. Um, he, you know, it's it's very clear that he made it clear that his pledge to to put a man on the on the moon and bring him back safely to Earth and and true to his form, he he made the promise that it was going to happen before decades end and and he and he made good, albeit he wasn't there to witness it, but that promise came into fruition. And I truly believe that had John F. Kennedy lived, the world would have been different. There's there's ample evidence that shows that he did not support America's full-fledged entry into Vietnam. There are memorandums that, that prove that he was already putting policies, that he was going to put policy, policies in place to have American troops withdraw from Vietnam much earlier. And one can only imagine the difference that would, that would have had in the war. Had America started withdrawing their troops earlier than they did, Vietnam could have ended years earlier and, and we can only imagine how many lives would have been saved had that been the case. And, and I truly believe that that would have been the case had Kennedy survived. And, and, and this is part of the, the reason why I wrote this book is I really, I really feel that the pro, the biggest issue for me with the Kennedy assassination is, is that there's never been any sense of closure to the Kennedy assassination. There's never been someone that's come forth and said, this is what happened. This is what took place. And it's just a shame that Kennedy wasn't able to live his dream and, and do what he what he set forth to do. And that's what my book does. It, it gives the reader for the first time the opportunity to see what would have happened had Kennedy lived. But my book relies and, and concentrates solely on the Kennedy situation, what happens after he gets saved. And I think it's... It, it devotes two or three chapters just on that. And, and, and people that have read the book just love the fact that it gives them an opportunity to look at how the world would have been different had uh, Mr. Kennedy survived. Uh, and uh, we don't want to give away the ending, so I don't want people to to to, uh, to know, unless they, they read the book, how uh, your character, John, is able to uh, to prevent the assassination. That's kind of an interesting <laughs> an interesting um, angle as well in the book. But let, let me ask you about the the, the time travel travel aspect. Um, now, in in the Stephen King uh, novel, you know, he, he, there's this sort of strange portal that his character discovers that allows him to travel back in time. Now, what's going on with 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 John uh, and and how he's able to to transcend time and space? It almost it almost comes across as if he's some sort of a a remote viewer because he has these Im, you know he has this these images these very strong um, prescient dreams if you will or images that flash in his head. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that device and how he's able to transcend time and space. When I when I was thinking about it, I. It, it, it took me a while to come up with the concept. I just didn't want it to look like it was gimmicky. And, but I did my genre in the, uh, the, the affirmation and, and the way he starts in his dreams 
it starts with visions and they get more sharper and they get they get more vivid and again as as i mentioned he he comes to that realization that he's able to actually be in the past and he realizes and then he goes back to Dealey plaza again and the re- the way he's able to transcend time it's almost as if he wills himself back into the past and in most cases that it happens he's in such distress and in such emotion that his emotion propels him into the past and his will to go into the past. There's there's not a portal in itself that brings him there, although there is a light in his in his room that is more of a signal that he has to go into the past. Right, right. It, it, he almost strikes me as a, as a remote viewer. Correct. That's correct. Are you interested in time travel? Is that something that you're... I mean, it's interesting... It's more than just a device. I'm, I, I, or is it? I'm, I'm asking. Is is it? Um, is it an area of interest for you, or was it simply a device? I've always loved. I've always loved the concept of time travel because time travel allows the 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 reader or the viewer to to move into another dimension in time that one could never do. And I remember watching. If you remember the old series, Time Tunnel, and there was one episode where where the character was able to transcend time and went back to the Titanic and tried to prevent it from 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 going down and I still remember to this day that that one episode had such an effect on me because I thought it was just such a wonderful and incredible not only idea but opportunity for someone to go back and go into a different space and time that they wouldn't normally be able to go to so when I you know when I when I thought about my book I just felt it was the perfect opportunity and perfect way for him to do what he had to do, which was to prevent the assassination. Uh, spend a few moments and talk to me about, um, without giving too much away, obviously, um, Oswald not involved, but he, but to what to what extent do you think he was involved? He was a patsy, but to what, what role did Oswald play in the assassination? To me, Oswald was a decoy. I, I, I would venture to say I'm even skeptical of, of whether Oswald fired a single shot. In my mind, the Kennedy assassination took place, and it, it was as a result of a team of, of, of snipers that were there. And Oswald, to me, was a decoy. He was just exactly as he had said. And if you look at that, that eerie film footage from his capture, and he basically spells it out and says, I'm a patsy. And I think that's exactly what he was. And and not Pat in the sense that he was, wasn't intelligent or he was a golfer or something like that. He was an intelligent man. It's just he, got, he found himself in the midst of circumstances that he couldn't get out of because there were so many characters and so many forces at play during the assassination and in its, in its inception that it would have taken a very strong, strong-willed individual to get out of it. And I don't think Oswald had that in him. Is it possible that he thought he was part of a, a sting operation to prevent the assassination? Because there seems to be, I think, some credible evidence that it was Oswald who tipped off authorities and prevented a Kennedy's assassination in Chicago. So if he was going to prevent an assassination in Chicago, why would he be involved in one in Dallas? That's a really good point. But I think what, what one, one has to realize is and, and again, we, we get back to we get back to the notion of the Kennedy assassination and all the intricacies involved, and that's what just mesmerized me when I started researching writing this book. But 
not many people, I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but literally days before the assassination, an FBI, a Miami police informant, had had an, a conversation with uh, a person named John Miltier. He was a, a, a right-wing leader, and he basically, on this tape recording, you can see them talking, and Miltier is is forecasting that Kennedy is going to be shot, and he's he's incredibly accurate in that it's going to be with a high-powered rifle. And if you listen to this to this taping, the person is saying, "Well, how are they going to get away with it?" And he's basically saying that it's from the highest level. And 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 Miltier says, "You know, they're going to leave no stone uncovered." And it's just an apocalyptic sort of forecast of what is going to happen days later. And this is just it's just incredible. So. They were aware of police in Dallas. I believe were aware of what was of of the imminent threat. But the as one knows, the security arrangements in Dallas at the time were were not where they should have been. There is some uh, some dispute as to whether the the actual parade route was changed. It is interesting that the mayor of Dallas, uh, Cabell, his brother was, I, I believe, former uh, was what was his brother? It was, he was a FBI, CIA uh, former. I think he had been fired by um uh by Kennedy not too long prior but that's an interesting relationship uh i mean who else would have the power to change the parade route if in fact the parade route was changed i'm undecided as to whether that actually took place well what you have to realize is that when kennedy came into power he fired then cia director alan dulles and he not only did did he fire alan dulles but he fired Deputy Director Charles, Charles Cabell. That was okay, a, a Deputy Director. That's right. Yeah. So Charles Cabell, coincidentally, was was the brother of the dep- of the Mayor of Dallas. So so Earl Cabell, who was Mayor of Dallas in 1963. So it's just it's that's just an incredible coincidence. And of course, we all know that Alan Dulles was part of was on the board of the. Uh, Warren Commission. So, you know, the, the intricacies and the coincidences, the coincidences are incredible. Uh, uh, true enough. Uh, and of course, if the parade route was in fact changed last minute, and again, I, there's some discrepancy there and it's a contentious issue. I'm not convinced that the parade route was changed, but the idea is that it was changed last minute in order to allow for sort of perfect triangulation in terms of, uh, uh, the assassination so that he could be shot from, from various angles and they, they could ensure, you know, a fatal shot. You're absolutely correct, Richard. In fact, many, many believe that that parade route was changed, but it was chosen because of the very fact. And I got to tell you, I, I was, I made a point of going to Dealey Plaza this past September. So I walked all of the plaza and I just was looking at the whole route and I was at the corner of Houston and Elm and just to see, to actually stand there and I was actually standing behind the grassy knoll and to be there in person and to actually see it live in person and see exactly where that parade route traveled, it was that sharp turn from, from Houston and Elm to where he was ultimately shot. It just makes it so slow and it, it gave 
any any snipers that much more of a credible opportunity to be successful in what they wanted to do. And of course, uh, the the, the Zafruder film, there are a, frame, a couple of frames missing, and we have eyewitness reports that the uh, the limousine uh, virtually came to a standstill. It's just stopped. Uh, I guess to allow, perhaps, some say the uh, you know the the final headshot uh, to take place, but. Um, uh, yeah, you just <laughs> every aspect of it is just fraught with with uh, complications that just strain credulity. Um, once again, I want to congratulate you on it's a it's a it's a it's if I can say the word fun and it, it, you know when we're talking about the murder of a president, but it's just the whole idea of what if and going back and changing history. Um, I, I think what you've tapped into is really a universal uh, feeling that we have uh, because. The idea of time travel going back, we'd all like to go back and undo something. Uh, we all have regret. We all have loss. And that's really universal. That's what you've tapped into. And uh, you know what? I think you could be the guy to uh, to really take this whole what-if genre. You know, what if Robert Kennedy had lived? What if Martin Luther King had lived? What if John Lennon had lived? There you go. There's your assignment, Adrian. Richard, you're, uh, you're an astute gentleman, and you're absolutely right. I, At the end of the day... I just think the one thing that my book, and, and it was my goal from its inception, I believe that my book serves to give closure to the fate of John F. Kennedy. It, it, it provides a positive alternative to the events as, per, as first prescribed in history. And more importantly, it allows the reader to, to speculate just how different the world would have been. Indeed. And finally, I think it's an ending that, it's a story that, that has to be told and, and I, I just think it's a wonderful alternative to a tragedy in history that I wish never happened. All right. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>